As a child, I was taught memory verses. It was the King James Version in those days, and there are some wonderful verses that you just don't get in modern translation. John 11 was one of them. Here we've got, um, where is it? There will be an odour. But in the King James Version, it was, Lord, he stinketh. That's considerably more memorable, isn't it? And it was one of those verses that a little boy would like to learn. It goes with the one in James about the superfluity of naughtiness, which is again a phrase that once heard, never forgotten really, even though you don't know what a superfluity is, you know what naughtiness is. Actually, like many small children, I didn't like work, and like Pharisees, I learnt ways of avoiding work. And so when I was asked that I had to learn a verse in the next week, I learnt a verse from here, John 11:35. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And it took me all week to learn that one, you know, and I passed my test because I learnt that verse, a whole verse. Jesus wept. I thought I was very clever. But it has always stood me stood by me as a text worth remembering. For Jesus' response to the death of his friend Lazarus speaks volumes, not only about Jesus and his compassion, but also about death itself. I'm sorry because of my uh, inconvenient toe and the rest, and I may say your church has yet again shown enormous generosity to me, uh, I didn't get the outline in time, so you've just got a blank piece of paper with a, a title of the day's sermon. I am sorry about that. It's my fault, not your officer's fault. I am the resurrection of the life is the title. But let me tell you, for those note takers amongst us, the four headings that I'm actually going to be dealing with. The first is I'm going to talk about death. And then I'm going to talk about resurrection. And then thirdly, uh, in resurrection, I'm going to tell you what are the, what is what it's not and what it is. And then thirdly, talk about Jesus' claim. And then fourthly, about the centre of Christianity. But first I want to talk about death. For death is the destroyer, the destroyer of life, the destroyer of all the good things of life. In death, we lose our friendships and love. We lose our health and happiness. We lose our, our personal dignity. We lose our meaning and meaningfulness. And death continues relentlessly to take away our friends and our family as year after year we see others pass before us. My wife and I pray at breakfast tables, read the Bible and pray there, and on Wednesdays we pray for widows. And as our years get older, the length of our prayers on Wednesday get longer. As more and more of our friends die and more widows are added to our list. But it's the sudden and unexpected deaths or the deaths of younger people that carries with it a sense of, of deep and profound tragedy for they seem to have been cheated of life, and, or at least their fair share of life. As some of you 
who are old friends of ours know, a couple of years ago now, one of our grandchildren, a grandson who was 16, died of cancer. It's sad beyond belief. It's grief beyond belief. This sense of profound tragedy. It's no different to any other death in one sense. But yet it feels different because it feels it feels like a person didn't have a chance of the life that those of us who lived beyond 16 years had. All death is obscene. Not just the death of the young, the death of the old is obscene. Death is always worth weeping over. For Jesus, at the tomb of his friend, wept. What we know about death today and what they knew about death in the ancient world is much the same. We know firstly that death is permanent. The dead tell no tales. The dead do not rise. The dead do not walk. The dead do not talk. The dead do not live again. Once dead, always dead. It's one of life's true permanence. Although it's not really true of life because it's the end of life. Furthermore, secondly, death is universal. While it's hard to imagine our own death, for death always seems to happen to other people around about us, many people still dream of what they would like to happen at their funeral, what they would like to have said, what respect they would like to have finally paid to them. For we all know that eventually everybody dies and that means I'm going to die. We are going to die. Our family, our parents, our siblings, our spouse, our children, but we ourselves are going to die. (laughs) It's something we all know, but it's something we find almost impossible to spend our time thinking about. Next time you're at a dinner party, or tonight if you're celebrating your new year, just in the middle of the meal sometime, turn to your hostess and say, Ask a simple question, you know, have you been considering your death lately? (laughs) It's just not an acceptable question, is it? There's something impolite about that. There's something rude about it. It's it's a forbidden topic. And yet, of course, it's the only topic that we know about for our future. It's the only certainty we have. For death is universal. There was an old church tradition of having the cemetery around the church building. It was a terrible practice because it made the church responsible for the upkeep of century-old graves that no one else cared about. And because it stopped the church buildings ever growing because their land was taken up with cemetery. But it was a wonderful educative reminder Each week as you walk through the cemetery to come to church, as you pass by your relatives and your ancestors, you are reminded of the reality of your own mortality, the reality of your own future, the reality that life 
ends universally in death. One pastor of such a church in Sydney told me that it was one of the reasons people today don't like coming to his church because they tell him they find the garden too morbid, too gloomy and dark. It was just not a nice place to come because it was all about death. But life is all about death. It's a reality. Is there any hope after death or on the other side of death? I mean, that's the question of life after death. We die, and then what happens? I mean, we know what happens in this world. Uh, Friends and family mourn and pay their respects. We dispose of the body. We disperse the dead person's possessions. We, We grieve and... And slowly, over time, we begin to forget. But what happens to the person? Is there life after death for them? Do they go to a better existence? Or do they just go into non-existence? Or do they come back to our existence? Or do they go to a worse existence? If death is the last word on our existence... Well, then life is ultimately meaningless. For whether we're good or bad, we die. Whether we're famous or infamous, we die. Whether we're educated or uneducated, whether we're wise, whether we're foolish, whether we're rich, whether we're poor, we die. It's all the same. We just die. If there is nothing more to life than death, then life itself is meaningless. Life is just a a long queue. You're born at the back of the queue and up at the front of the queue is the crematorium. And you spend your life shuffling forward, forward to the crematorium. Playing games on the way, reading books on the way, watching Netflix on the way, binging out on Netflix on the way, but it's all meaningless because There's just the crematorium at the end. And and we go on with silly optimism. You know, he's had a good innings. It was a good death. I mean, he's up there enjoying himself. But that's silly optimism. And it is a way of inoculating ourselves, a way of anaesthetising ourselves from the reality of the meaninglessness of our existence. But we Christians, we don't preach a vague optimism, a wish, a hope against all hope. We preach the resurrection of the dead. So what is this resurrection? My second heading, second topic. What is the resurrection? Not what was Christ's resurrection, what is the resurrection? Uh, Let me start by identifying what it's not. It's not reincarnation. That's a different system altogether. Reincarnation is a belief in an eternal soul that keeps re-entering into bodies in a cycle of life and death and new life and death and new life. It It just comes in and out of different bodies, sometimes not even human bodies. You may come back as a as as a cow or a dog, you may come back as a cat or a monkey or a rat, but It's just a recycling of the soul into different bodies. It actually goes nowhere. Resurrection's not like that at all. 
The resurrection is the raising up of your own body once forever. It's you, your body, coming back to life again, to live as you forever. Nor is the resurrection some kind of immaterial spirituality. We don't leave the body to be in an internal state of bodilessness, bodilessness, of just being spirits, of being, of being ghosts that live in a non-material ether. No, no. Resurrection is about the body, you, the person, coming back to life again. And therefore, thirdly, it's not the same as the common phrase, I'm going to heaven when we die. People speak of going to heaven when we die, but there is no reference in that description of what the Bible means when it talks about resurrection. We lay the body in the grave and we talk of the soul going to heaven, but the Bible talks about the body in the grave being resurrected, being raised up. And finally, the resurrection is not a, a metaphor a metaphor for the sense of Jesus' continuing presence amongst us. Uh, it's a silly idea that came in the 20th century from unbelievers who were practised scholarship in the New Testament, trying to explain the resurrection without believing in the resurrection and saying that some people, they just the apostles, they just had a sense of Jesus' continuing presence with them after he had died. That's a nonsense, really. It's actually rude to the New Testament people. They knew what death meant. They knew where dead men do not rise. Their claim was the tomb was empty. Their claim was we saw him. We thought he was a ghost, but he wasn't because he insisted on eating fish, sitting down and eating a meal with us to show us he wasn't. He showed us his hands with the holes. He showed us his side with the... It was the same man physically, bodily, raised from the dead. So what is the resurrection? What is the meaning of this term resurrection? Well, firstly, the resurrection is the judgment day. The day when God brings the present world and his world order to an end. And in that day, all will rise to life again in order to enter into life or to enter into condemnation. But we all rise. This is what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12 or Ezekiel chapter 37. And it's what Jesus taught. Turn with me in your Bibles or scroll in your telephones to John chapter 5. I like people turning in their Bibles because I can hear the pages turn. I don't hear the phone scrolling. John 5 and verse 25. John 5 verse 25. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good 
to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the resurrection is what happens at the end of the world, the day of judgment, when people will rise to life or to condemnation. Secondly, the resurrection is the overcoming of death by coming back to life again. The body coming back to life again. The body, the person who was dead and buried, ashes or dust, coming back into bodily form to life again. And in that, in that understanding, there is a continuous identity. The person who dies is the person who will rise. It's the same person who comes back to life. I will be me, you will be you. We will know each other as we've always known each other. There is a continuity of the person, of the identity. And thirdly, the life we come back to is bodily. It's a physical regeneration, the redemption of our bodies, as the New Testament calls it, which will involve the physical transformation of our bodies to be appropriate for our existence. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul puts it this way, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. You see, my friends, my body is mortal. I'm just being polite. Yours is also. <laughs> and because it is mortal, it is ageing. It is heading towards death. It's always been dead, really. It's just dying. And so it's beginning to bag and sag and bald and wrinkle and and it, it's now getting more difficult to get up and to get down and you can't run quite as fast as you used to and your eyesight's not as good as it was and your hearing gets lessened. And this is the standard life for everybody because we are all in bodies that are dying. When you reach 20, you're at your peak. From there on in, it's a long slide down. A kind of convex, convex kind of, kind of con it goes faster as you get further down the track. You know, 20, 21, you don't notice the difference. 71, you'll notice the difference. It just gets worse and worse as you head towards the grave because we have mortal bodies. But when our body is resurrected, it will be an immortal body. It won't be designed for three score years and ten. It'll be designed for eternity. It will not be aging and bagging and sagging like this present one is. It will stay on for all time. In Philippians 3.20 we read, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform, will metamorphose our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That was another King James version of the Bible I used to like because it talked about transforming our vile body, V-I-L-E, our vile body into the likeness of his glorious body. So this present body, it's not really very good. Oh, it's pretty impressive. I mean, mine's very impressive. I don't know about you, but have a look in the mirror. It's, it's 
mortal. But our glorious body will still be our body, will still be identifiably us, you, me, but will be like Christ in glory. Fourthly, this resurrection of our bodies has commenced already spiritually when we were born again. So that God can speak in Ephesians chapter 2 of Christians as having been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. doesn't say we will be raised up. It says we have been raised up. Not, of course, physically, but spiritually. As Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Our resurrection of our bodies in the future has already started spiritually in this lifetime. So that when we gather like this, we are gathered, we are seated in heaven. Nice chairs in this church, but you would have expected better ones for heaven, wouldn't you? You're going to spend eternity sitting on it. You'd hope for something a little bit more plush. But you are seated spiritually in the heavenly places now, in this lifetime, awaiting the physical transformation of your bodies so that then you'll be like Jesus physically. Our resurrection takes place when we are born again by the spirit of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That is, through the resurrection of Jesus, Christians have already been raised spiritually as they're born again by the spirit of God. For the same power of God that was at work raising Jesus up physically from the grave to seat him at the right hand of God in all power and authority, that same power of God is at work in us spiritually raising us from our death commitment to sin into a new birth of regeneration. This belief in the resurrection was by no means universal in the ancient world. It was only amongst the Jews that they believed it and not all the Jews believed in it. The Old Testament and the New Testament teach the resurrection you can see it in the Old Testament, Daniel 12, Ezekiel 37. But one Jewish group in particular, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't accept the prophets either, which is why they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't really believe in God and they didn't really believe in his word. And Jesus rebukes the Sadducees for their lack of belief in the power of God and in their lack of belief in the living word of God. Yet among the Jews, one group, the main group, the Pharisees, the group that continued on after the New Testament, the Pharisees firmly believed in the resurrection. The great medieval Jewish scholar uh, Maimonides, he wrote, I believe with full conviction that there will be a resurrection of the dead at a time which will please the Creator. It is standard Jewish belief. It is standard Old Testament belief because it's standard biblical belief. The resurrection is the judgment at the end of the world Then everybody will be raised up physically. And the New Testament makes the resurrection absolutely central. 
Come with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Turn there, turn there. 1 Corinthians 15. One Corinthians fifteen. Verse twelve. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, well then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus, of which there is clear historical evidences, the resurrection of Jesus can't be true if the dead are not raised. But if the dead are not raised, then Jesus hasn't been raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, then he didn't pay for the sins of the world. And therefore you're still in your sins. And you have no hope of eternal life, only the certainty of death. And of course, it was part of Jesus' claim. That's the third heading I've got on my outline for those of you who would like it. This is the third topic, Jesus' claim. For as we read in our reading in John 11, he said in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm turning back to John 11. We will come back to 1 Corinthians 15, but go back to John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. And it's to that claim we really need to turn our attention. For what I've said so far paints the background to which we now place a marvellous jewel, a beautiful diamond, a wonderful pearl that makes sense when you see the background. Jesus said this when he came to grief, the grief of losing his friend Lazarus to death. That memory text I had as a child, Jesus wept. So much did he love his friend. So deeply did he feel the pain of grief in death. And yet it's strange, isn't it? It's strange that he should weep if he knew that he was about to raise him back to life again. Why did he weep for the man he was about to rise for, raise from the dead? Why did he grieve the loss when it was just about to be, to be found? Such, such is the nature of death that it causes even the Son of God to cry for it expresses the judgment of God on humanity in our sinfulness and it's so foreign to the God who creates life that he also brings about death. It's so destructive of everything that is good. It's such an expression of 
the conquest of evil in this world that Jesus weeps. It may also be an indication of what Jesus knew about his own future, of what lay ahead of him in the battle that he was yet to face. If death was to be truly and permanently defeated, then he himself had to endure this death. But it was the interchange with Martha that gives real meaning to the event of Lazarus's raising. Look back into verse 21 of John 11. Martha challenged Jesus. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She trusted Jesus. She trusted that under God he could do anything, even raise the dead. Did he not raise the widow of Nain's son? I mean, Jesus could do these things, but there was something of a rebuke in her words that Jesus hadn't got there earlier. They'd sent the message that Lazarus was sick and dying. Jesus paused and waited. He didn't rush to his friend's bedside and now he's died. If you'd got here earlier, Jesus reassured her in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. But it wasn't the reassurance that she wanted. It wasn't the reassurance that eased her distress at the moment, nor that excused Jesus' late arrival, nor meant that Jesus was doing anything for her now. You see, Lazarus was a, Lazarus was a Jewish believer, one of God's faithful people. Of course he'd rise on the last day. That's what resurrection's about. He's died. The resurrection will come one day and when the resurrection comes, Lazarus will rise up. But he's dead now. What comfort is that? And why have you come just to say that, Jesus? I mean, you're just saying he'll go to heaven. They didn't understand the resurrection. Just think about it for a moment. You know, repeatedly Jesus tells about his own death. Repeatedly he says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be beaten up, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, they'll kill me. And then after three days I'll rise. And although he repeatedly says it, the disciples only hear him saying that he's going to be killed. Peter says to him, Lord, this mustn't happen to you, and rebukes him. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Do you notice that over and over again, the disciples do not hear Jesus saying, in three days I'll rise again. You would have thought, okay, Jesus, you're going to get a bad time, a bad weekend, but you're coming back after the long weekend, are you? Three days, then you come back. I mean, it's dreadful you're going to be killed, but you're going to come back in three days. Or to say, oh, gee, this is terrific, you know, in three days the resurrection's going to happen. No, within the Jewish hearing at that stage, the resurrection on the third day meant the judgment at the end of the world. And so Jesus saying they're going to kill me and in three days rise was saying they're going to kill me and I'll go to the resurrection on the last day. They didn't hear it because they didn't understand the resurrection. 
Martha didn't understand the resurrection. Jesus says, Lazarus is going to rise again. And she says, yeah, I know that. You don't have to come and tell me that. I mean, I've always known that. He's a good godly Jew. Of course he's going to rise again in the resurrection. You're not saying anything, Jesus. But then Jesus makes his claim. A claim that would be demonstrated in his calling of Lazarus out of the tomb a claim that would be demonstrated in his own rising from his own tomb. Not just demonstrated, but commenced, for Jesus did not rise to die again, like Lazarus. Jesus rose to die no more. Jesus rose to conquer death. Jesus rose to commence the judgment of the world and the end of the world. And so Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. It's a kind of funny thing to say, isn't it? I am the resurrection. I mean, we're used to it if we're Bible readers. But stop and think, it is a bit odd to say, I am the resurrection and the life. It was God who called himself, I am. He told Moses, I am who I am. That's my name. It's God who is the author and giver of life, who breathed life into the nostrils of man and brought them into life. And it's God who will judge the living and the dead in the resurrection. But now Jesus, the man, is saying... I am the resurrection and I am the life. The claim is so great, so breathtakingly blasphemous that it's almost impossible to believe that he could say such a thing. Was he saying that he was God? Was he just claiming to be the ruler of life and death? The very judgment on the last day, I am the judgment that is coming for the rest of the world. How could he claim to be such a thing without claiming to be God? And he goes on in the rest of the verse to spell out some of the implications for he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see the enormous arrogance of Jesus to think that your eternal destiny is determined by whether you believe in me. The man was a megalomaniac. Or he was God. He doesn't leave you much room to manoeuvre, does Jesus. The claim he is making is of that order. He who believes in Jesus is given the blanket wonderful promise as the resurrection. For as the resurrection, Jesus will raise up believers. See, I am the resurrection. Believe in me, you'll be resurrected. I am the life. Believe in me, you'll never die. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. For in the judgment, in the resurrection, Jesus will raise the believers to life and will not allow death to punish any of the believers. For Jesus is, as Martha rightly professed, verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Here is a believer. She knew Jesus could deal with sickness and death of her brother. She didn't know how, but she knew it was more than confirming that her brother would rise on the last day. Jesus was saying much more than that, and she believed it. She may not have expected Jesus to raise Lazarus out of the tomb in half an hour's time, but she knew that their future, her future, Lazarus's future, was all in Jesus' hands. Now Jesus was making it clear. Death was to be defeated by the coming of the Christ. The judgment of the world was commencing with the coming of the Christ. He was more than a militaristic empire builder. He was more than overcoming the Roman Empire. He was the judge and saviour of the living and the dead who was defeating sin and Satan and death and hell. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And that's why, friends, my fourth heading the resurrection is the very centre of Christianity. Turn again with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, verse 1, of the gospel I preached to you, of which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. See, the basis of our knowledge of this event, of Jesus' resurrection, is the historical records of the eyewitnesses. They saw the tomb, it was empty. They saw the man who had been crucified, the person, Jesus, sitting down, eating a meal with them. They saw him repeatedly over several months. They saw this man. But that's just the facts. That's all eyewitness history can give you is the facts. What's the interpretation? What's the meaning? What's the understanding? What does it mean when a man comes back from the grave? The right understanding of the resurrection is in accordance with the scriptures. You will not understand the death of Jesus unless you understand it in accordance with the scriptures. You will not understand the resurrection of Jesus unless you understand it in accordance with the scriptures. Because he died in accordance with the scriptures, he rose in accordance with the scriptures. So the background to the judgment of the world is necessary 
As the creed says, on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. His resurrection is the basis for our knowledge of our resurrection. And because we know the resurrection through his resurrection, we do not dread death and what it holds. We do not dread the resurrection, but rather look forward to it because he promised us that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. For our Lord Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. As he himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. Our family grieves for our 16-year-old grandson. Anyone who's lost a family member grieves. Death is awful. The sorrow is real. The pain is intense. The tears keep flowing. And to say to us, don't worry, he'll go to heaven brings very little comfort. But to know that the world is going to end in the resurrection and that that resurrection has already commenced in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ means that we do not grieve as those who have no hope, but with certainty we know we will see our Nathan again. For the Lord Jesus Christ was his Lord and Saviour and our Lord Jesus Christ himself has been to the tomb of his friend where he wept and to his own tomb from which he was raised. If you know Jesus, you know he who is the resurrection and the life. If you do not know, I don't know who's here today, if you do not know Jesus, the resurrection and the life, if you do not know him, please ask a friend, a Christian friend, to introduce him to you. If you don't know any other Christian friend in this church, just come by yourself and know no one here, come and ask one of the pastors of this church. Just say, could you introduce me to Jesus? Because once you know Jesus, you know the resurrection and the life. You know you're going to die. Really important to know the resurrection before you die. Ask a Christian friend. And Christian friend, if you know Jesus, the resurrection and the life, then make sure you tell your friends. Make sure you tell your family. Make sure that this year, this day, this, this weekend, that you take the opportunities to introduce your friends to Jesus. Because your friends, your family, they too are going to die. And they need to know of the resurrection and the life. 
before they meet the resurrection and condemnation. Death is universal. The resurrection from death is to judgment to those who do not know Jesus, but to life to those who do. For Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death for our sin and for his resurrection from that death. We thank you that he so paid for the sins of the whole world that death could not hold him. We thank you that you raised him to new life, raised him to sit at your right hand in all power and authority, to become the resurrection and the life for all who would believe in him. We do thank and praise you, Father, for Jesus, for his death and for his resurrection. And we pray, Father, we pray for each other, that each person here gathered with us this day, in this site or watching it through the television screen, that each one of us, Father, would know Jesus, the resurrection and the life, and trust him for their resurrection and their life. And we pray, Father, for those of us who know him, that we may ever make him known to others, that they too might share in the great privilege of being resurrected spiritually now in this world and finally when Jesus returns and our lowly bodies will be transformed into the likeness of his glorious body that we might live with him for all eternity. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.